it's a good thing to meet with the Lord's people on the Lord's Day, that one day out of seven that he's anoint, is appointed for public worship, as Pastor Nick recently preached in regards to the Christian Sabbath. This is the only day appointed by the Lord that we must regard as holy. Romans 14, however, talks about some men regarding different days as significant, and in that sense, our culture recognizes and has set apart a day to appreciate fathers. It's a good thing to have certain periods set aside to give honor to those who are worthy of honor, and because we're going to keep plodding through 2 Corinthians this morning, I just wanted to say a quick word on behalf of fathers before we start. I'm going to give three quick words, one of recognition, one of encouragement, and one of exhortation. By way of recognition, I'd like to say that God, godly fathers who lead their families well are foundational to any church. God has ordered the world in such a way that men, and especially fathers, are to lead both in the church and at home. And the building blocks of a solid church are well-ordered families led by fathers. And CBC couldn't function without men who lead their families well. So your labors in the Lord aren't overlooked. By way of encouragement, I want to say that fathers here in this local assembly have been a model to me and to many others as we learn by example what it means to be men who follow the Lord well. You live for Christ openly and plainly, and so your labors are appreciated. And by way of exhortation, your task as a father isn't over until you arrive in glory. So never grow weary of doing good. It's been said that, it's been well said, that not every father is called to be a professional theologian, but every father is called to be a household theologian, dedicate, uh, delicately and dedicatedly teaching your family the full counsel of God while they remain under your roof. And even then, when your children grow up and move out, keep instructing them in the ways of the Lord, no matter how old they are. It's a high calling to be a father. Uh, as one pastor pointed out, your duty as a father isn't a small one, but as you've been charged with bringing immortal souls into this world, immortal souls who are destined for eternity, and everything you do as a father is nurturing and guiding that child to one of two eternal destinations. But by the sure promises of God, your labors are not in vain. So I'll say again, your labors aren't overlooked, your labors are appreciated, and your labors aren't in vain. Now turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're still dealing with some of Paul's introductory material in the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 15 of chapter 1 to chapter 2 and verse 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 15, let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. And in this confidence... I intended at first to come to you so that you might receive grace twice, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you, and by you be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, was I vacillating when I intended to do this? Or would I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but has become yes in him. For as many are as the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also, through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the pledge of the Spirit in our hearts. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again at Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. 
But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you again in sorrow. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I have made sorrowful? And this is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have abundantly for you. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, may this text give life to your people this morning. May it drive us to repentance where we haven't lived up to your law. May it drive us, drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ where we can find forgiveness for our transgressions. And Father, if there are any within earshot of my voice who haven't experienced that forgiveness, any who are still under the power and dominion of sin, would you use your word this morning to free them from their bondage? We pray in faith knowing that you're more than able to accomplish that which we've asked. Amen. You can be seated. Pastor Nick chose the title for the sermon this morning. He labeled it Pastoral Change of Plans. A Pastoral Change of Plans. And that's a pretty good summation of what we're looking at here in our text. But it could just as easily be called Don't Nitpick Your Shepherds. If you recall Pastor Nick's introductory message, he taught us that this book is Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry. And two weeks ago, I preached on how Paul handled that first objection that these false teachers had brought to the effect that God wouldn't let his chosen apostle suffer persecution. But in the text this morning, Paul moves to another objection that seems to be made against his credibility as an apostle because they couldn't find anything really substantial to hold against him. Some of the Corinthians started reaching for any flimsy excuse they could find so they didn't have to obey him any longer. The objection he's responding to is that he, get ready for it, changed his travel plans. Uh, quite the objection, is it not? But these false teachers framed it in such a way that Paul's change of plans seemed to indicate that he couldn't be trusted to keep his word. That if Paul was tr untrustworthy in the smallest details of his life, the false teachers argued that he also couldn't be trusted in regards to the preaching of Christ. So let's keep that objection as, in mind as we wade through the text and see how Paul overcomes his challengers. Going back to verse 15, Paul says, And in this confidence, I intended at first to come to you, so that you might receive grace twice. The confidence of which Paul is speaking is found in verse 14 that Pastor Nick covered last week. Paul was confident that if he came again to them, he would find them as a repentant people. He had to give them a letter of harsh rebuke, which I'm sure ruffled many feathers, but Paul was confident that when he came again to the Corinthians... There would be a mutual rejoicing in one another. That Paul would be the boast of the Corinthians. And that the Corinthians would be the boast of Paul. And that doesn't mean that they were boasting in their flesh. No, Paul is speaking about a boasting in the gracious gifts of God. Paul was confident that if he came to the Corinthians again, that they would boast in the grace of God. That is, that they would be uh, seeing that he is gracious enough to send one of his own messengers, the Apostle Paul, to them. And Paul was confident that when he came to Corinth again, he would be able to boast in God's work, God's grace in the church. That grace which drove them to repentance for the sins that he called out in his last visit. It's in this confidence that Paul intended to come to the Corinthians again. He says in verse 15, so that you might receive grace twice. It's important to point out that Paul is defending, even in these first couple words, his pure motives. As Pastor Nick preached last week, his conscience was clean, completely clean, because his entire ministry was wrapped up in those two great commands to love God and love neighbor. Paul's ultimate aim in traveling to Corinth again was to obey the Lord Jesus in discipling the nations. 
That was his primary goal. That was his highest aim, to love God by obeying his command to disciple the nations. And then, as we see in verse 15, Paul's trip to Corinth was also rooted in deep love for his neighbors. He wanted to grace the Corinthians with his teaching and preaching. He wanted to give them, he wanted to give them more preaching and teaching to grace them twice, two trips. We see this same concept in the epistle to the Romans, where Paul says, For I long to see you, that I might impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be strengthened, that is, to be mutually encouraged while among you by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul wasn't seeking his own pleasures. He wasn't fulfilling his own fleshly desires by avoiding traveling to Corinth. He was serving the Lord out of pure love for God and for neighbor. We have some of our own people in Reynosa right now, and it's the same concept. They aren't going on a purely evangelistic mission trip, although those are needed. They're going to provide support and fellowship to like-minded believers, to be mutually encouraged and strengthened by each other's faith so that both parties can have their eyes more firmly fixed on the goal, firmly fixed on the Christian life. And in a similar way, we read in verse 16 that Paul intended to travel to Corinth before his way into Macedonia, and after his trip from Macedonia, he was going to come to them again, make a collection, and take it to the church in Judea. Paul told the Corinthians about his plans, but sometimes afterward, there began to be an increased immorality in the church, a rising of false teaching. And so, for reason which Paul will explain more fully in a few verses, he changed his plans and decided instead to go straight to Macedonia without stopping in Corinth beforehand. He begins to answer the objection at hand in verse 17. He begins, Therefore, was I vacillating when I intended to do this? That word vacillating means to shift back and forth, to be between different opinions, to be indecisive. They were accusing Paul of flip-flopping on his word whenever he saw fit. But Paul's implied answer here is no. No, I wasn't being fickle. I wasn't being indecisive. We read on. Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Paul says first that his intentions weren't according to the flesh. That term flesh in Paul's writings almost always means to be according to our fallen natures. He's denying that his intentions were sinful or fallen. Rather, he had pure motives, as we spoke about a moment ago. Neither was his word to the Corinthians, yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time. By that, he means he wasn't giving them an inconsistent and contradictory answer. I think we've all experienced someone who might be less than consistent in fulfilling their word uh, or keeping their promises, or perhaps someone who will tell you what they believe at one moment, and after a couple seconds of conversation, they can completely flip it around, like they're trying to weave in a conversation and be crafty, be subtle. But this isn't how Paul interacted with the Corinthians. He always had a consistent motive behind all his actions, again, the glory of God and the good of the churches. But because they really couldn't catch Paul on anything substantial, they uh, kind of redirect, and these super apostles leapt on whatever they could. I mean, uh, travel plans. It sounds like they were just straining to find anything wrong with him. Paul had spent months with this church, laboring and preaching and teaching. He had put up with all the debauchery that we read in 1 Corinthians, and he received harsh pushback by many in Corinth. And despite all of his efforts, some in the congregation just could not be satisfied with his ministry. You know, that's probably one of the most overlooked sins in the church today. Uh, we're all aware that we have sins that we overlook, that we deem as respectable sometimes, things that we don't view as that bad. And uh, pretty close to the top of that list in the modern church is having an overcritical attitude toward our pastors and ministers. Churches tend to split over the silliest of disputes, whether there's 
contemporary music, or hymns, chairs, or pews. And you know, we all have preferences about those things, but sometimes we have to overlook our own desires and preferences. Isn't that what we read all about Christ and Christ's nature? Let's turn to Philippians 2 to look at that for a second. book of Philippians, in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affliction and compassion, fulfill my joy that you might be the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. Love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory. Note that term, vain glory. Glorying in something, but it's just vanity. But with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself, by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. And therefore, God has also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, so then... Because of this example given by Christ, just as you have also always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And here's the key for what we're talking about now. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you'll be blameless and innocent children without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So, The Christian life is about following in the steps of Christ as he submitted himself to others. And if this is uh, true of Christ submitting himself to his equal, to the Father, how much more should we then seek to submit ourselves to those who exercise a true spiritual authority over us, our pastors? But this overcritical attitude really seems to come from a place of pride and self-exaltation. Rather than seeing our pastors as gracious gifts from God to guide and shepherd our souls, it's like they can never live up to our standards. The sermon's too long. The sermon's too short. Or how about, you know, that's, that's not how I would have done it, right? There's too many youth events. There's not enough youth events. We sing too much. We don't sing enough. I think we should do communion every week. Or how about once a month? All these little nitpicky things. And on and on we go thinking about how the church could become more like the ideal church we have in our heads, fitting all of our little preferences and desires. I'm not talking about areas of sin, of course, but all our little desires and how we would change this or that. We have a tendency to become just really ungrateful people. I mean, Paul has given up his life for these people, and they're nitpicking him over his travel plans. Come on. You know, the Paul who planted the church, preached the gospel to them, gave them everlasting life in Christ, taught them how to know Christ more intimately, wrote scripture to them. Yeah, that Paul. Yeah, we found something to complain about. What we're really saying, if we're honest, what we're really saying when we complain and stay dissatisfied all the time is, man, you know what this church needs? Me. And we tend to overlook this, but it's, it's really a dissatisfaction at the gifts of God. If we think about our prior state before Christ saved us, 
We were, as Paul says, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and the list goes on and on in Romans 1. And though we were vile and law-breaking sinners, Christ came for us and He died for us. And not only that, the Father sent His Son, He sent His Holy Spirit rather, to regenerate us. And when He regenerated us, He adopted us, grace upon grace. We're now His own children, and not just any child. We are firstborn, co-heirs with Christ, and the inheritance we have is an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that's it, right? That's all He's given us? No, then He gave us His Word. And if that weren't good enough, in case we had a hard time understanding that, Paul says in Ephesians that God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. He showers mercy upon mercy, including our pastors. Pastors who labor over the scriptures so that we can be fed with the word of God. Who labor before the, th- uh, the Lord for our sins in prayer who counsel us and give us biblical guidance for our lives. Again, gift after gift after gift the Lord gives us. And we say, you know, uh, that gift you've given me, those pastors, I've got some opinions about them, right? It just goes to show that we don't understand the privilege that we have to be welcomed into the congregation of God. It's almost as if we have a tendency to think that God owes us His grace or that He owes us these Christian privileges. But that's not at all the case. It's like a child who gathers with his whole family to open presents on Christmas Day. One of those presents who, uh, families who just buys dozens and dozens and dozens of presents for their children on Christmas. And the little boy with a mountain of gifts stacked behind him opens his father's present. And then right in front of him, he just throws it aside and moves on. Now we all recognize that attitude as being sinful. But are we guarding against that same wickedness in our own hearts? Are we driving out that root of pride that's dug down so deep within us? That pride which has been our friend for too long. That pride which seems impossible to drive out of our hearts. The only way to battle it, Christians, is to look toward the graciousness of Christ. The only way for that little child to appreciate his gifts is to see them for what they are. Presents given out of familial love. Undeserved tokens of love which are freely given and happily given. Our gracious Father has taken rebels against His throne and adopted them as His dear children. And it's as if He spreads His arms and says, look, at, look, child, at all the presents I've given to you. Look at all the gifts I bought for you. And in our ingratitude, in our unthankfulness, we never think His gifts are good enough. Brothers, God really has given us good gifts. He's given good gifts to His children. This isn't just some bare plea to quit nitpicking our shepherds. It's a plea to look toward the graciousness of Christ to cultivate a disposition of thankfulness as we think on the many, many gifts our God has given us in the gospel. And then to view our shepherds as part of that gifting from God. We read a little more about this in verse 24. Verse 24, Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. Paul, as a model shepherd over the churches, says that he is a laborer, a worker for their joy. We've never had a catechism class here, but I hope we all know that first uh, answer to the Westminster Catechism. It asks, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the goal of man. That's what we're for. That was why God made us, to give glory to God and enjoy Him. That is, to take joy in Him, to delight in Him forever. And the task of a shepherd is to guide his flock to that end goal. Paul is a laborer, straining and fighting, doing everything he possibly can to bring the sheep to that chief end, to find full joy and satisfaction in Christ. 
We could rewrite the question, and when I read this this morning, I heard this in the voice of John Piper. I don't think I got it from him, but we can rewrite the question, what's the chief end of a pastor? A pastor's chief end is to give glory to God by bringing the joy of God to the people of God by the word of God. To give glory to God by bringing the joy of God to the people of God by the word of God. Everything that Paul's doing, even in writing the Corinthians a severe letter, even in avoiding coming to them, is ultimately to bring them joy. You might be familiar with Psalm 67. It's usually used as a missionary song. And one of the verses ended up being the title of John Piper's book on missions. The psalmist wrote that he wanted to make God, uh, known God's salvation among the nations. He says, let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. We see Paul in his work as an apostle laboring to make the nations glad, to make them joyful by the message of salvation and Christ. That's what he's saying when he here um, calls himself a worker for the Corinthians' joy. Now that might sound strange in the context, but Paul is giving the Corinthians time to repent. He's giving them time to get their affairs in order before he comes to them. We read later in chapter 7 that many had come to repentance after his last visit. But Paul is being gracious and patient with the congregation to allow the rest to repent and restore order in the church before he has to make another painful visit and set things right himself. Paul's severe letter, which rebuked them of their sins, was so that they would have joy in Christ. You can't have a fullness of joy in Christ while you're still in unrepentant sin. He's doing everything he can, whether that be excommunication, rebuke, exhortation, everything he does is aimed at that one chief goal of his ministry, to bring the joy of God to the people of God with the word of God. And when we nitpick our ministers, I'm not sure we recognize just how much they labor over our souls, giving the whole of their lives over so that we can find joy in Christ. When I was uh, studying over 2 Corinthians again these past couple weeks, something struck me in chapter 11, if you'll turn there. Pastor Nick and I have both alluded to this passage pretty much in every sermon in the series so far. But if we can read it, starting in verse 22, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, in verse 22, Paul says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they Abraham's seed? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. And far more labors, and far more imprisonments, and beatings without number, and frequent danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship in many sleepless nights, in starvation and thirst, often hungry and cold and without enough clothing. And apart from such things, here we have Paul's big cherry on top, his grand crescendo, apart from such things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my concern for all the churches." Isn't that amazing? On top of all those beatings and scourgings and stonings is the burden he has for the well-being of the churches. And I'm not saying that you can never bring up a concern or suggestion, of course, that you have to your pastors. I'm saying we should approach them with an attitude of respect that's due their office, recognizing that they're working week in and week out to ensure your joy in Christ. 
It's with that spirit that we're to approach our elders, not with a spirit of haughtiness and pride that demands we get our own way. But back to the immediate context in verse 17. Paul denies that he's being governed by the desires of his fallen flesh. And he says in verse 18, But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. Even if his travel plans had changed, his purity of intentions had not. If he had came to Corinth, it would have been for the good of the church. If he decided not to come to Corinth, it was because he knew that was what was best for the church. His intentions weren't shifting back and forth. They weren't vacillating. He was intently focused on doing what would bring the most glory to God and the most good to the church. And in doing this, he argues, he's keeping with the character of Christ himself. In verse 19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but has become yes in him. Paul is saying that it's absurd for the Corinthians to doubt his teaching on the basis of his changed travel schedule because his preaching about, the, about Christ has not changed. He and Silvanus and Timothy had all preached Christ among the Corinthians. He's bringing them into the conversation, it seems, almost to back up and bolster his credibility. He's pulling them into the conversation as to say, don't forget that rejecting my preaching means you're also going to have to reject the preaching of Silas, Silvanus and Silas are the same person, and Timothy as well. All three of them preached Christ to the Corinthians, and they didn't preach him in a back-and-forth way. They were not vacillating in their message about Christ. All the truth of their preaching and teaching has become yes in Christ. It's truthful. It'd be silly to say that Paul's doctrine is untrustworthy, or that it's changed because he's preaching the same message he's always preached to the Corinthians, Christ. He's preaching that Christ is yes, that is, he's affirmed. And in verse 20, for as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. He's pointing out that God's promises are not like an unstable and untrustworthy word, but are all firmly established in the person of Christ. It's as if they were charging Paul with changing his doctrine, and he responds, Have you ever heard me preach anything other than the promises of God in the gospel that are found in the person of Jesus Christ? Paul has always preached a consistent message about Christ without wavering. His doctrine hasn't changed with his persecutions or with the shifting cultural tides, but as God is faithful, he says, so too is his message faithful. Oh, how I wish we could say that we have the same consistency as Paul, that we wouldn't dare preach anything but Christ and him crucified. No matter how much it costs us, no matter how much we are slandered, that we would say with Paul, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. That we would be able to say in the same way that God is faithful, so too is our proclamation. We preach one consistent message, and that message is the promises of God as they are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in verse 20, For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes, therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Paul points out first the truth of the gospel. He's not just making up the message. Again, it's been firmly fixed in history by Christ himself, and he's saying that his preaching is simply an amen to what God has already established. Amen means so be it. We sometimes say amen after we sing a hymn or have a pastoral exhortation. And what we're saying is that we affirm its truth and desire its fulfillment. The truth of the gospel has been objectively established in Christ. And Paul's preaching is simply the amen to what God has already told us through his son. His affirmation of divine truth. Paul continues his explanation of this change 
in verse 21 by expounding upon the solidarity that he has with the Corinthians in Christ. We read, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us as God, who also sealed us and gave us the pledge of the Spirit in our hearts. He's reminding them of the commonality in Christ, their unity in Christ. That word established is speaking of standing firmly. And here Paul says that he and the Corinthians have all been firmly fixed in Christ. That is, they've all been placed into union with him in such a way that they all together compose the body of Christ, as we read elsewhere in Paul. There's a unity, a solidarity between all believers because we're all united to the same Christ by faith. The picture we get from Ephesians 4 is that we're all members of Christ's body and work together to form one cohesive whole. We're so tightly woven together in Christ that through the bond of faith we cannot be separated. And not only that, we've all been anointed, as he says. That is, we've all received the gift of the Spirit. And in verse 22, that same Spirit has sealed us all to share in a future glory together. Paul's pointing out all the ways believers are united with one another as part of his broader argument. With this concept of our commonality in mind, he goes on to explain that what was truly best for him, changing his travel plans, was also the best thing for the Corinthians. Because they share a common bond and are all working together toward one ultimate goal, what's best for Paul was also best for them. We read on in verse 23. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers for your joy. For in your faith you were standing firm. When he says that he calls God as witness to his soul, he's taking a form of oath or a vow. In the same way that we might stand in front of a court and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, Paul is saying that what he says here is totally and completely honest. He vows that the reason he didn't come to Corinth, it was for their best interest. I hope we're picking up on the fact that Paul treats his word very seriously. That it's not something that you can just back out on whenever you please. Paul wasn't lying, far from it. The circumstances had simply changed. If he came when he had originally planned to, as Charles Hodge writes, he would have had to come with the rod of discipline in his hand to correct those who were still unrepentant. But Paul had confidence that most of the Corinthians were true believers and would correct their ways. That's why he says, For in your faith you were standing firm. They'd walked away from the right path for a season, but Paul was confident of their position in Christ. He was sure they would come back with a spirit of repentance. In chapter 2, verse 1, But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. Now at this point, the Corinthians might be tempted to say that Paul admits he acted selfishly. He determined not to come for his own sake, right? But we can't forget the context that we just established. Because of their commonality and unity in Christ, what was best for Paul was also what was best for them. They had a shared goal, the glory of God and the good of the churches. He explains this further. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? And this is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy will be the joy of you all. You see how he assumes their joy is mutual, that his joy will necessarily produce their joy. And in verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have abundantly for you. 
Here we have the capstone and conclusion to Paul's response, a simple assurance and emphasis for the last time that he acted with the Corinthians out of compassion and desire for their well-being. We can really err on two sides when it comes to correcting a brother. Sometimes we have a tendency to jump at the opportunity to correct them or rebuke them, as if that's all that matters, that they're called out for the wrongdoing. But Paul says he was broken over the sin of his people, that it caused him great anguish at heart to correct them. But on the other hand, Paul did correct them. He wrote a letter of rebuke, which I'm sure many of us would be too afraid to write. And uh, the worship team can make them wear up here. But he says, he wrote so that they might know the love of God, which he had abundantly for them. And there he rests his case. Whether the Corinthians were satisfied with his answer or not, his defense had been made, everything he said was true, and next week we'll move on further into chapter 2. Most of Paul's introductory comments are gone, and we start to read how those pure motives that he has meets the Corinthians and their current problems that they're dealing with. So if you will, pray with me. Father, I thank you greatly for the ability to gather with your people this morning. I pray that this simple exposition of the text will still prick our consciences of sin and would drive us to you for mercy. I ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.